New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. What is the purpose of our spiritual practice? Whether we're Christian, Buddhist, Muslim, Hindu, pagan, or Jewish, if we are a true seeker of high spiritual attainment, what exactly are we going for? Today's guest, Tim Sintetsu Burkett, reminds us that the important thing is to find a practice that helps us to be kind to ourselves and kind to others. Today, we'll be exploring how to cultivate generosity, gentleness, and compassion with our guest, Dr. Tim Burkett. Tim Sintetsu Burkett is guiding teacher of the Minnesota Zen Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He's also a licensed psychologist and a former director of People Incorporated, a large mental health agency in St. Paul, Minnesota. He has been a student of Shinryu Suzuki Roshi and later Katagiri Roshi, in whose lineage he is a Dharma heir. Suzuki Roshi's book of talks, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, is a classic for all spiritual seekers. Tim Burgett is the author of the memoir, Nothing Holy About It, The Zen of Being Just Who You Are. Join us for the next hour as we explore a life devoted to the cultivation of wisdom and compassion with our guest, Tim Zintetsu Burkett. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Tim, welcome. Well, I'm so happy to be here, Justine. I'm just delighted to have you. Tim, I would like to go back to the beginnings when you first met Suzuki Roshi. And I, I know you describe in that moment meeting him. I think you were a student at that time at Stanford University. I was. And and meeting him and telling him all about this mystical experience you yeah. had. And yeah. so wh- talk about that first meeting. With- oh, well, uh, it, it was very interesting because I had had this experience uh, of dying to my, my spouse self and opening up to just all life. Um, without doing any med- knowing what meditation was or doing any meditation, uh, I had been poring over this book instead of going to classes at Stanford, the teachings of the mystics, reading over and over again uh, certain refrains that really resonated like the peace that passes understanding. I went to Utah to go skiing with my friends on break, uh, and I had this little book with me, and I kept just... I, without knowing what meditation was, I went into a deep meditative state. And then, 
oh, Tim fell away. All the worries and concerns fell away. And there was just the wonder of joy of being present in the moment. Uh, and then on my way back on the train to Stanford, Tim started coming back. <laughs> so I think, oh, you didn't write that paper in Abnormal Psych, which is why you bought the book in the first place. <laughs> and, 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 you know, time is running out. So all of the rehearsing and reviewing and repeating and regretting that we get caught by had been let go of. And then it was coming back. So I got back to Stanford and I thought, gee, this is what I want in my heart of hearts. I want to let go of this coagulation of worries and concerns that is our small little encapsulated self. So I thought, well, San Francisco, there are a bunch of Chinese people there. I've been to Chinatown lots of times. There should be a Zen teacher up there. So I looked in the phone book under Z, so the San Francisco phone book, and I found the Zen bar and the Zen center. And, and that was my, I thought, well, which shall I go to? <laughs> but, you know, I knew the bar scene really well. So I thought, oh, I'm going to go to the Zen center. So I, this was in 1964, before meditation was even talked about, before anybody knew that there were any Buddhist teachers around, and there were hardly any. And I went up to the door, knocked on it, and this little Japanese man opened the door, and he introduced himself as Reverend Suzuki, and I went up to his office, told him about my experience, and was expecting him to say, wow, but instead he said, oh, that is good, very good, but that's not Zen. <laughs> yeah. All right, yeah. all right, but you stuck around, you, well, you then, were yeah. curious. Well, I was curious, and he he then showed me uh, a cushion and showed me how they sat, and he said, uh, "You come, please come sit with us, do do our meditation with us." Uh, and at first, I thought he had he just didn't understand English very well, but he also had this kind of oh, just softness and openness and calmness to him, and I just so I just thought, well, I'll do it. And then after a while, I realized that it wasn't that he didn't understand my English; it was that I was carrying around this memory. And as beautiful as it was, that's not Zen to carry around these memories and try to repeat them and try to project them on the world. I know in your travels with him, I believe that you actually went to uh, Yosemite with him. Is that is that is that true? No, I didn't go to Yosemite with him. Uh, he went to Yosemite. Uh, uh, Tony and Tony Johansson took him to Yosemite one one day. And then when he came back, he talked about the experience. It's been quite a few years since I've read Zen Mind, Beginner uh-huh, Mind, which uh-huh. is a book of his talks. Uh-huh. But I remember specifically that beautiful talk that he gave about uh, Yosemite yeah. Falls, yes. about the waterfalls yes, yes. in the river. Yes. Uh, I heard him give that talk, um, but of course that was years ago. Wow, years wow. Ago. Yeah. But, but he used an image of waterfall and, yes. and, and yes. natural yes. The nature images yes. often. Yes, yes, he did, yes. He talked about that, seeing the rivulet uh, coming out of the falls and, and how the fall itself uh, seemed separate from the rest of the water and, and how uh, lonely. <laughs> he, he looked at it, how lonely it must be, but it, yet it was part of all the water. And, and so even when there's loneliness, there was the, the stillness of interconnectedness. If, it, if, if the rivulets were just as they were, and so it was wonderful. <laughs> it was beautiful. One of the stories and analogies or metaphors that you use 
in the book early on, which I just loved, was about the eagle that was raised as a chicken. Uh-huh. Do you recall that story? Vaguely. Vaguely. <laughs> well, the eagle, you know, was somehow ended up uh, yes. being uh, yes. raised with hens, and, yeah, yes. and it thought that it was a hen yeah. all that time. Yeah. And one day it saw yeah. Yeah. this this eagle, yes. and it kind of longed to be an yes. eagle, but yes. of course it was a chicken. Yes. And and the point of that story, if I'm reminding mm-hmm. you, uh, mm-hmm. it was yeah. about mm-hmm. it takes more than longing; it takes aspiration. Mm-hmm. And and can you say something about aspiration and 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 what that is? What? Well, uh, all of the as, as I know, you know, Justine, all of the mystics in the East and the West talk about uh, a stillness that permeates everything. And uh, uh, if we really believe that there's a stillness that permeates everything, then we can develop not only a longing to manifest that stillness, uh, not only a hunger, but an aspiration to to to, uh, uh, to tap into that, to experience that, and make that the center of our lives. So, so that, it's be, it's beyond just a good idea. It's something deeper than that. I hope so. If it's beyond, if it's a good idea, we get caught by the idea, and then we want to convert other people to it. We want to get at it. Has to be bigger than an idea. It has to be even beyond a belief. The belief has to motivate us to to want to do some kind of meditation, or at least be in nature every day, very quietly. Do something. We can't tap into that stillness unless we're our body is still, unless we confront in a, in a gentle, open way all of this stuff that go, is going on in our mind all the time. All this chatter, which I call in my book the Chatterbox Cafe, after Garrison Keeler, <laughs> we have this Chatterbox Cafe that's just incessantly going on and on. But the calmness is right there in the Chatterbox Cafe if we can just be still and and feel it. Well, one of one of the obstacles that many Westerners will confront in doing meditation is has to do with it. We, we are very, very busy people. We're used mm-hmm. to being very yeah. busy. You can chatterbox cafe, yeah. Yeah. but being busy, multitasking, yeah. Yeah, all of that. Right. And if we're sitting, one of the things that might come up for us is boredom. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and that's almost unbearable yes, for yes. Westerners. Yes. What can you say about confronting that boredom? Well, I can say two things. Uh, first of all, um, uh, I teach basically two different types of meditation. One is concentration meditation. So if you're bored, you can use something to help you bring your attention in. You can use your breath or you can use your own mantra, create your own mantra. You know, you can use some sacred one, but your own mantra could be sacred. Maybe you're just going to say uh, deep on the in-breath and calmness on the out-breath. Maybe you're going to recite uh, a couple of lines of a poem, you know. Uh, and, and all of that is to sort of uh, bring in a focus away from the boredom. Or I was going to say, or Bob Dylan. Anybody who meditates sometimes is going to have a difficult time. If you don't have a difficult time in your meditation, I don't think you're really meditating. I think you're just chattering to yourself. 
because we're so addicted to this noise. We're so addicted to this chattering that, that letting, seeing the addiction and letting go of it uh, is, is difficult. Uh, so my Dylan, so my, since I started in 64 and I was in San Francisco and Palo Alto, Dylan was my, like my, also my teacher, although <laughs> many of his lyrics were not my, <laughs> were, you know, were dark. But, right. but this one, my love, she speaks like silence without ideals or violence. She knows there's no success like failure and failure is no success at all. was, was important to me when my mind was out of control, which it is much of the time for beginning meditators and even sometimes for intermediate and even for sometimes advanced meditators. So my love, she speaks like silence, referred to my teacher. I mean, for me, he just seemed to manifest Suzuki Roshi. We called him Sensei, Reverend Suzuki. He seemed to manifest this quiet stillness wherever he was. Not some big deal, just some quiet, wonderful stillness that we could feel when he walked in the room that we could feel when we were with him in the car. And you could say maybe this was partly our projection. Yeah, probably it was, but, but the stillness is there at the center of all of our being. So once we tap into it, other people feel it when, when we're around us. You, you know, in the 60s, we used to talk about contact highs. Mm-hmm. Well, people would get contact highs from two people when one person would take acid. Well, gee, or the more so. When someone has really meditated and settled into this wonderful open stillness that's mm-hmm. at the base of all mm-hmm. life. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Tim Burkett. He's the author of the memoir, Nothing Holy About It, The Zen of Being Just Who You Are. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, nothingholyaboutit.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.com. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Tim Burkett, and he's the guiding teacher of the Minnesota Zen Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and he is also the author of the memoir, Nothing Holy About It, The Zen of Being Just Who You Are. Tim, we're talking about meditation, and I I know throughout your book and throughout your teachings, you often talk about in in meditating, it's 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 not about avoiding. So you talk mm-hmm. about that stillness, mm-hmm. but getting to that stillness mm-hmm. isn't about pushing away the thoughts or or beating ourselves up about 
the Chatterbox Cafe. So can you say something about why it's not about avoiding those feelings? Well, avoiding those feelings is, is, I use the term which I picked up from someone, spiritual bypassing when we avoid those feelings. Uh, when we have, they're going to they're gonna come back. If we, if we think we're going to transcend them or uh, uh, they'll come back, it's like repress, we're, we're repressing them when we, when we avoid them. They're, they're here. They're here. So uh, part of meditation is learning just to be with whatever comes up. Uh, I do teach this kind of concentration meditation where you repeat something to yourself, but uh, I also teach that we just have to learn to be aware of whatever is happening. And I have an interesting story about that. Uh, um, I went to the, we've been speaking at all these Buddha centers around the around this northern part of the state, which is my original home. And uh, I went to the San Francisco Zen Center to speak. And before I went to the San Francisco Zen Center to speak, we went over to the old San Francisco Zen Center, which is at Bush and Laguna in, in a Jewish synagogue. That's where I did my practice in the late, mid to late 60s. So we looked in the Jewish synagogue. I wanted to show it to Wanda. And uh, it's a senior citizen's home now. Uh, uh, the Japanese evidently sold it. And, and I pointed out to her that behind where the two seniors were doing something in, in the front of this big plate glass window was the auditorium. And in the auditorium was where they showed, when I was a Zen student there, the Japanese people showed uh, Class B or Class C or Class D samurai shoot 'em up movies, <laughs> blood and guts, only it was more sort 'em up, you know. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, and my teacher, uh, Suzuki, went every Saturday night because that was how he ministered to the Japanese. The Japanese didn't want to sit in meditation. <laughs> they weren't into meditation, and yet they were paying his salary. We didn't pay him anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it never occurred to us that he had to, he, he had to live somehow. <laughs> right. <you know? laughs> right. So uh, uh, I was having one time, at one point in my life, several points, I was having trouble with all of, the, all of this imagery, all of this emotional stuff that comes up when you just sit still and you don't have a television, you don't have a radio, you don't have an iPhone, or you're just sitting. And we do long retreats, and we even our sittings are 40 minutes long, and you have nothing, and this stuff is going to come up. This imagery is going to come up. This chattering is going to be incessant at, at times. So I was having problems with it. Um, and uh, uh, this was on a Sunday morning just after uh, uh, yeah, he would have gone to the Saturday night movie. And I had been over to North Beach on Saturday night seeing the real movies, the good movies, because that's, <laughs> that's where they had Francois Truffaut oh, and you know, right. all those all those. Wonderful in the sixties, they were there. <laughs> and the Wonderful. Bergman, yeah, yeah, Bergman, right, yeah. and Bergman. So I said to him, uh, "You go to these." He looked kind of tired to me, and I said, "You go to these movies every Saturday night, don't you?" And he said, "Yes." And I said, "Do you like any of them?" And he said, "I like them all." Now, at first, I thought, "Oh, you know." He's just not very sophisticated. <laughs> he, he's just, and often I felt that way about him. It, generally, it wasn't until later that I thought, oh, there's a teaching there. He's showing, whether he's doing it consciously or not, he's telling me something. 
And he was, in fact, telling me something. He was telling me that these images in my mind, I didn't have to fight with them. I didn't have to try to uh, discriminate between them. I could just watch them. I could just open my heart kindly and be with them and see that they're just, it's just a screen. It's just a movie screen. We don't need to jump on stage and try to change the movie or look for the good movie. The movie is just happening. It's the nature of the mind to make movies. And we can just be with them and we can see through them. By seeing them, we can see the space between each, each frame. Um, because there is a space, even if it's just this tiny, and that space is this immense stillness. But if we if we try to diss the movies, uh, they just uh, keep coming back and keep coming back. If we try to repress them and find the best movie, we don't aren't able to see. Oh, it's just movies. It's just chattering. It's it's not me. That the true me is much larger, or you could say much smaller, but it's not of space. It's not of time. I think that he he demonstrated this for you in another instance, if I'm remembering correctly. It was, um, he had a collection of Raku yes. uh, teacups. Very good memory. And, and yes. he, uh, yes. Uh, and yes. he was yes. instructing you, very good memory, yes. So for those for the folks who don't know, Raku pottery is really a, really wonderful. In, in Japan, Raku pottery is all hand done, and, and uh, it's valued partly for the spills on it. Uh, when it's kiln kiln dried, they they leave the spills on, so that uh, it's 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 authentic. It feels real, and. Uh, then they put the the glaze on it. Well, my teacher had a a, a row of raku pottery in in his kitchenette where we were having breakfast once, and uh, this was at a time that I had had. Uh, uh, well, this first experience that I had was what what I would guess I would call an enlightenment experience. But then I had a second one when I was meditating with him at our Zen monastery, a, a huge one. The first one left me. The second one actually never left me, but uh, still my acquisitive mind was coming in. And we have this acquisitive mind, this little Tim, this little Justine always wants to get things right. And so I was, I was going to go to Japan to practice Zen. Um, and uh, I was doing a lot of comparison shopping, uh, so much comparison shopping that I was beginning to get... Uh, a little bit revved up. So you were going to go to Japan because you wanted to get the authentic? Yeah. My teacher said that, uh, yes, my teacher said I should go there, and I thought it would be wonderful just to practice with them and sort of do a better job of grounding the experience of enlightenment I had and just making it into putting it into my daily life, into my moment-to-moment life by being there physically. And and you were looking for the perfect yeah. zendo well, to go well, to. Which go one to should one. I go to? Yeah, yeah, I heard about these places where they don't do meditation. <laughs> uh-huh. They just do ritual. I don't want to go to one of those. Yeah. I'd heard these pl- uh I wanted to go to the real deal. I mean, why go out to Japan if you don't do the real deal? And I heard that some of them were so ritualized, there was very little meditation, and there was a lot of... A focus on hierarchy and, and it just seems stupid to me. So I was doing my I, what I thought was good comparison shopping, but I was including him in it. 
I was mentioning it to him, and so he knew exactly what was going on. And uh, and I guess I was getting a little revved up. I, I don't know. <laughs> I just thought it was good comparison shopping. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you're gonna gonna spend a year in some place and give your life to it, you want. I wanted it to be meditative, not just be. Ritual. <laughs> so uh, I was talking to him at breakfast once about mine, uh, what I was doing, and he said, and I just just very gently and mildly, he just made these sort of casual comments to me. He said, um, "Well, if you uh, try to pick the best teacup," and he pointed to the to the uh, shelf where there were these beautiful, in, beautifully individually done Raku, because he's just done individually uh, uh, Raku teacups. He said, if you try to pick, choose the best teacup, you will not appreciate any of them. <laughs> so that was a wonderful teaching for me because my acquisitive, my uh, evaluative, my judgment mind at that, at that moment and for the few days previous was was interfering with my appreciation of just being just being in this wonderful open stillness that's always mm-hmm. here so that was a big help to me and as a result of that i didn't go to japan at all i just <laughs> stayed and worked and stayed with him now i don't know if that was his intention necessarily right but that's uh, what yeah, happened yeah. you know as you were talking about meditation and and you mentioned you know how we our thoughts come up one of the analogies you use and maybe you learned it from him or other teachers mm-hmm. was to think of our thoughts like birds in the sky mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the sky is not affected mm-hmm. by the birds yeah, flight that, that's right but can you say well, something well that's right and actually in my book i use the expression of butterflies lighting on your shoulder mm-hmm. so Butterflies, a light on your shoulder, sometimes a uh, swallowtail, sometimes a monarch, sometimes just cabbage butterflies, sometimes just moths, a lighting on your shoulder. And actually, uh, if we think of the, our imagery, rather than thinking we need to get rid of it, it's, it's showing us something. Even, even the negative imagery, even the imagery with violence, it's showing us something kind of beautiful and it's telling us also something about our anxiety and what we're so if we can just appreciate these these butterflies and moths that light on our shoulder they'll go away they go away and we can watch them fly off and more will settle uh people who say they reach a point in meditation where they don't have butterflies alighting on their shoulders they don't have any imagery Oh, I kind of don't believe that. <laughs> I think you've been, I think often that's spiritual bypassing, meaning mm-hmm. they're they're really not noticing that as as the Buddhist teachers always said, it's the nature of the mind to wander. The, the, the mind wanders. And as and as Bob Dylan said, if my thought dreams could be seen, they'd put my mind in a guillotine. We all have mm-hmm. these thought dreams. They're all mm-hmm. coming up. And if we were to voice them, if, you, if the four of us right now were to stop and just voice everything that's coming into our heads, we'd all get locked up at Napa State Hospital, <laughs> if it's still around. I don't know if it still is. Well, you know, uh, so it's, it's a matter of not being attached to the, the to do it, just allow it to be there lightly. If you, if you yes. have the image yes. of a butterfly, yes. it's just a light 
a light be, sort of thing yes, on your shoulder. It doesn't yes. have to be heavy. Yeah, yeah. We carry around all the stuff and we project it. Right. We project it. We're fearful based on yes. all the stuff we carry around. But but and there's some need there's uh, developing that fear has the fight the flight or fight response has a function, a function, an important function, but we just get taken by it and we don't have a life beyond it. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Tim Burkett. He's the guiding teacher of the Minnesota Zen Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and he is the author of the memoir, Nothing Holy About It, The Zen of Being Just Who You Are. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Tim Burkett. He's the author of the memoir, Nothing Holy About It, The Zen of Being Just Who You Are. Tim, we're talking about meditation, and one of the phrases that you use throughout your book is the phrase, our kind attention. That's a phrase that kind of Mm. popped up at me from the very beginning of the mm-hmm. book to the end of the book. Mm-hmm. And it, it was in, in your teachings. Mm-hmm. That's a very gentle approach mm-hmm. to meditation. Yes. Can you say something about the importance of our kind attention? Well, I've been with meditators for years and years and years now. And uh, without kindness, uh, our meditation can become very brittle and we become competitive with ourselves, with others. Uh, And kindness, actually, an act of kindness brings us back to being here. Uh, Whenever we're kind to ourselves or a cat or dog or a human being or even a a book, uh, that means we're present with it. That means we feel some connection with it. And, And that helps our mind open up to this wonderful stillness. So kind attention to to whatever is happening during meditation helps us just settle into the stillness that's already here. And if we're not kind in our meditation, pretty soon our meditation is just as competitive and just as judgmental as all these other things we do. Uh, And that competitiveness and judgmental attitude blocks our natural openness, our spontaneous quietness, uh, that, that judgmental attention, that competitive attention is part of what I call the fear body. Kindly, we, we can see the fear body so that we can see through it. We can open our hearts to it so that we can see through it and see the stillness that's right here, always. Well, I now, don't know how you can do it without being kind. That, but that reminds me of something that I, I, I've not practiced Zen mm-hmm. meditation, mm-hmm. so I'm, I don't mm-hmm. have an mm-hmm. um, orientation towards mm-hmm. that, but more in the Tibetan mm-hmm. Buddhist mm-hmm. Oh, uh, uh-huh. 
way that of meditating. But but I've I've heard like, what about the Zen stick? Then the Roshi coming in and hitting you with a stick. So is that kind? I mean, like that must be a shock if some. I, I've heard that well, that ha- has well, happened. Well, I don't I don't do any of that stuff myself. But I, I was hit by my teacher, my first teacher, with a stick a couple times. And um, he did it uh, for one thing. And the way I was taught Zen years ago was uh, in, at, in San Francisco Zen Center and at Tassajara Zen Center. My teacher used a stick, and I was taught you use the stick too. And that, and, uh, but generally, people would ask for the stick when they were falling asleep. Ah. That's the way my teacher used it ninety ninety percent of the time, and and it would and actually it makes a big whap on your shoulders. But if it's done right, it doesn't mm-hmm. help. It helps you be attention, pay attention when you're getting drowsy, and hopefully it helps you pay kind attention. Although that, it, I think it does, it did to me. But about five to ten percent of the time, my teacher I don't use a stick. He used the stick uh, when he wanted to. Uh, Make a point. I mean, the mm-hmm. stick makes a point. And uh, there's a story which is probably in the book about uh, going to a talk uh, when I was probably in my first couple of years, uh, a talk by a Korean Zen teacher in um, Berkeley with my, with my own teacher and the, my girlfriend who was, became my wife. <laughs> and uh, this Korean was saying what what we thought, Linda and I thought, were very silly things about uh, how, about reincarnation and how if you uh, uh, took from this till in this life, in, in the next life you might be born without a hand. And we just were, we thought it was really silly. So we were chatting in the background and kind of teasing each other. Well, the next morning at meditation in San Francisco, he came around and he hit us all. All was a small group, Mm -hmm. including my future wife and me, and my other friend, whom I visited with the other night. She reminded me that she was there, too. Mm -hmm. He hit us, and he said to us uh, something like, I I can't remember what he said, but something like, uh, 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 you need to respect the person who's, who's there with you. You need to respect them. It's important. Whop, 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 whop. Wow, yeah. So yeah. He, he used it that way. I, w- I wouldn't do that. This is American culture. But, well, I, but, I'm reminded, uh-huh. Tim, of in Tibetan uh-huh. meditation, and this has been some years that mm-hmm. I've experienced this uh-huh. with, with one of my teachers in, in the middle of a talk or maybe in a meditation Suddenly, he will holler out oh, yeah. a single yeah. syllable like "pa," yeah. but it mean really loud, yeah. and and you think that you're yeah. meditating fine, yeah. and you think yeah. you're present, yeah. and yeah. and for a moment after that sound, it's like yes. Yes. you experience yes. something like yes. what might be described yeah. nature of mind or yeah. that stillness yes. Yes. for a moment. Good. Very good. So the so kind attention doesn't mean attention without a sword. Sometimes uh-huh. we need a sword. In Vajrayana teaching, the sword is very important. But also Manjusri, the, the bodhisattva who is on our altars, carries a, carries a sword. So, but the sword has to be 
you know, the teacher has to know what they're doing if they're going to wield the sword. Well, that reminds me, teacher. To, Tim, what do you feel? Do do we need a teacher in order to progress in uh, our— uh, I think so. I think in 95%, maybe there are 5% of people, these uh, Eckhart Tolle people, maybe he's mm-hmm. among the 5%, mm-hmm. but most of us— we need a teacher. We need someone who's done, been there and done that so and, will, and will be the, be here with us. The trick then is how do we find a trusted teacher? Yeah. Because there are yeah. many teachers that can lead us that are yeah. we won't realize yeah. that are in their ego mind yeah. and they're not going yeah. to lead us down a path of, of true awakening. Yes, and this is a difficult problem. And as you know, I'm sure you know this, there have been a, a, a lot of whom we thought were our most eminent teachers have have gotten in trouble. You know, they've ended up seducing their students, um, doing all kinds of things. And so I think we need to be careful of this whole guru thing um, because as soon as we put someone on a pedestal and deify them, uh, we forget their humanness. We forget their frailty, their vulnerability. Those Raku pots, the reason we, my teacher loved them is that they're not perfect, is that they show their imperfection, uh, and they're more alive for showing their imperfection. So I think when we're scoping out teachers, we need to pay attention to whether they're, they're of the earth, to whether they're able to be humble, mm-hmm. to whether they be just who they are, or whether they're trying to be great or, or, or think they're the greatest. Mm-hmm. Uh, a teacher who thinks they're the greatest, probably we should stay away from. That's a part of the uh, the Dylan phrase. Uh, so my love, she speaks like silence without ideals or violence. We get caught on this idealized image of the teacher or or who we should be or who we've been, and and then we lose our mm-hmm. natural openness, our natural stillness, and think this person's got it. And then, you know, they take advantage of us. It happens time and time again, and it probably will keep happening. One of the uh, incidents or one of the uh, stories that you tell, which was just so delightful uh, about Suzuki Roshi and also Katagiri Roshi, uh, they both um, attended uh, something called uh, Zenefest, like a benefit Zenefit. Zenefit in the uh, in the sixties, and can you describe that scene? Well, I sure can. I sure can. Uh, so this is uh, in San Francisco in the sixties, and there's been debate about whether it was in the Avalon Ballroom or the Fillmore Auditorium. But I saw the poster this morning, and it was in the Avalon. All Ballroom. right, all right. I wondered when I read about that. I said, <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. And so we had a, a Zenefit in 1967 in November in early November, to raise money for this uh, monastery that we had just bought. This, this, it was actually a resort in, in Carmel Valley, uh, which we turned into Tassajara Zen Monastery. It's the first uh, Zen Buddhist monastery in the United States, and a beautiful resort. Uh, and uh, we needed to raise money for it. And we were counterculture people, uh, meaning that we didn't, we didn't have any money. Sometimes our parents had money, but we were dissing our parents. So, <laughs> so the one of Suzuki, Suzuki's main man 
came up with this idea of raising money by having this benefit with the Grateful Dead, Big Brother and the Holding Company, um, Quicksilver Messengers. Quicksilver Messengers, so you remember better right, than right, I do. Right. And Janis Joplin. And uh, so we, you know, we did it. We did it. And I was one of the volunteers. I was just one of the volunteers who helped helped doing it. And we were just this morning at uh, the uh, the Zen Center of Jokshu Kwang Roshi. Um, and his wife brought out, or no, his son brought out the poster this morning. There's oh. a, the original poster that, that Jokshu Kwang had made for, he'd done the calligraphy Priceless. for the posters. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Priceless. Yeah. So that happened November something, 1967. I didn't usually go to the that part of the city. I guess that was on the edge of the hate. I can't even remember. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had to go over to volunteer, and and you know it was it was a, a wonderful rock concert, and there were all kinds of pungent odors right. and, and, and a, a light, light show. show yeah. yeah, and I and I actually watched the light show. Off the bald head of my teacher. <laughs> I mean, you know, I did it discreetly. Yes, <laughs> but yes. I could see it. Yes. And and he was and my teacher. Well, there I had my two teachers were there. My teacher to be and my teacher of the time. My teacher to be Katagiri Roshi, who had just been in this in this country for a couple months. And then my teacher Suzuki Roshi, who'd been with us, meaning us sort of beaten at counterculture folks for for some time. And and Katagiri Roshi looked really scared but Katagiri, but Suzuki Roshi had been practicing meditation for many more years and he'd been with us so he uh he seemed to be in his element having a great time then Janis Joplin came to speak I uh, came to talk came to sing at the yes, end yes. after everybody else it was Janice's term and he seemed especially attuned to her singing he was sitting in the front and she was right there and so then after she sang, it was time for him to get up on stage to, th- to say something to folk. And he said, at first, I think your way very different from ours. But now I see not so different, not so different. The crowd roared. And he was touched by her ability to just give herself away and be totally available and totally present in that moment. Those moments she was on the stage. And leaving her fear body behind. Exactly, exactly. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Tim Burkett. He is the guiding teacher of the Minnesota Zen Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And he is also the author of the memoir, Nothing Holy About It, The Zen of Being Just Who You Are. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Tim Burkett, guiding teacher of the Minnesota Zen Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and he is the author of the memoir, Nothing Holy About It, The Zen of Being Just Who You Are. Tim, why was it that Suzuki Roshi even decided to come to the U.S.? What What's the story behind that? Well, it's a very interesting story. He was... He was uh, disenchanted with the way they were doing Japanese Buddhism at the time, Japanese Zen Buddhism. They, nobody was interested in sitting. And nobody, nobody, I can't say nobody, few people, were, I don't want to generalize, few people were interested in sitting. And few people deeply believed that they could settle into this great silence. Isn't it true that that mostly in Japan, at least at that time, the 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 teachers and the monks did the sitting, but the uh, parishioners, so to speak, we would call them in, in our, our pantheon, uh, the parishioners, they, they didn't do any sitting That's meditation. Right. That's right. And even the monks, many of them were too busy doing the rituals to do the sitting. And uh, so he had this aspiration from the time he was a young man to come to an English-speaking country because he had a tutor, Miss Ransom, a British tutor, who... Uh, uh, he, she taught him in English, he taught her Japanese, and she was very interested in Zen Buddhism. And uh, he, he thought that coming to this country would be just right because she was very moderate in her tastes, in her way of being. They had tea every day at 3 o'clock promptly. She was very disciplined. Uh, she was very uh, careful about the way she... She took care of her table and took care of things. She would do a high tea service, yes, huh? high tea service. So it's very yeah. ceremonial yeah. in some way. Yeah, so he was just excited about the possibility. But as a young man, he, he wasn't. his teacher didn't want him to come. Then the war broke out and things were chaotic. Then f- after the war, the monks had, no, had very little. They couldn't afford to come to this country. Finally... When he was in his late 50s, someone invited him. The Japanese people in San Francisco invited him to come to be their minister. And he thought, wow, I get a chance to, to, meet with all, to teach with all these Miss Ransoms who must live in, in San Francisco. Instead, he got us. And, <laughs> this, was the, this was the sort of the end as the beatniks were sort of melding into the hippies. You know, I don't know whether, what we were. were we, and I was kind of in between, but... We were immoderate. We were undisciplined. <laughs> we were uh, very unmeticulous in the way we took care of things. And we were wild. We were wild. Mm-hmm. But he saw our aspiration, and we felt his silence. And uh, somehow, the two cultures came together. And, and little by little, it worked. He, he had the resilience, and we had the hunger because of that, coming together are these two very disparate cultures, the opposite of what he thought he was getting into. We have now Zen centers and all over the United States. It's pretty cool. In, in some ways, when he came, he might have had an expectation it was going to be like oh, it was in England. He, you know? he thought it would be. You know, at that Zen, if it caught a Geary, he looked really scared. He was the the monk who le- became my second teacher. He'd only been here a couple months. He looked really scared. So did Suzuki go through that? I didn't know him at first, or or did he? Because of his twenty or thirty years of additional meditation, was he able just to to be here? Probably a little of both. Probably mm-hmm. a little of both. Mm-hmm. 
That just reminds me of the idea of worry and how um, I think he he mentioned how worry takes us out of the time zone that we're in. Uh And you mentioned a... um, Incident where when you bought Tazahara, there was going to be a balloon payment at some point. And you even mentioned that there was a moment that Suzuki Roshi had a worry about how we're going to meet that payment. That's right. That's right. So he was driving with my friend uh, in the car, and uh, my friend who was on the board, uh, and he were chatting, and the board of directors, um, and uh, he said to my friend, he was er- w- worried about the balloon payment uh, coming up in 1971, and this is something like in 1968, he said this to my friend. And then he took a breath and he said, of course it already is 1971. <laughs> uh, and within this big silence that's always here, uh, it, uh, there are all timers included. So he was he was really acknowledging that when he was in that worry, it was already that date because that's where he was living. His his being was uh, well, in that. We, well, I, I think what he was acknowledging was that his his worry about that uh, was important to think about that. But the worry itself is encompassed by stillness, by openness, mm. uh, by. Uh, 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 timelessness. He was reminding himself and the guy in the car that this, it's within timelessness. We're not bothered. We're not bothered by any of these images. And, and, and so, and so, my friend then said to him, "It may be 1971 for you, but it's not for me." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Meaning, he was yeah. just saying, "I, I uh, haven't, yeah. I haven't settled into the stillness, which includes all time within it." And. and, and I haven't settled into this yet. So it was a very honest answer, uh, response from my friend. And and you know, Tim, in some ways, too, for Suzuki Roshi, he's just revealing himself like, yeah. hey, I'm just like you. I There are, there are moments yeah. that that butterfly yeah, of worry right. exactly. comes on my shoulder. And, yeah. and, and then a demonstration of, oh, I, I guess it's like the, it's always that deep breath Yes, that's yes. available that's to right. us at any one that's moment. Right. That's right. Uh, and, yes. and can you say yes. something well, about that? Well, it's available breath? for us at any mo- one moment, but my friend ha- hadn't steeped himself for enough time in meditation to, to, to get that. I mean, he got it as an aspiration. That helped him aspire. That helped my friend aspire to, to continue his meditation because he saw that his teacher can do this. Teacher can let these butterflies mm-hmm. lie on alive, even when they look like moths, even when they look like scary night moths. They're just butterflies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, that's why having a mentor can be is so important. Yes. It's so important. A spiritual mentor. Uh-huh. Yes. How Doesn't about, have to be a highfalutin teacher. How about? Um, I know that you've mentioned how this seems paradoxical, but. Our enlightenment experiences or mystical experiences might actually um, hamper our progression in some way. Can you say something about that? So in the 60s, lots of people were taking acid and mescaline and, you know, who knows what. But people were taking acid and mescaline 
and whatever, the, mainly acid and mescaline, to have an enlightenment-type experiences. And I didn't feel like my teacher was against those, but he just saw those. He, talk, he talked about that, uh, the, the ones that were really enlightenment-type experiences. Some of them were just, you know, you would take them in at rock concerts and you just go crazy. But I mean the ones where you really took care of your set and setting and you put on some really spiritual music and... Uh, and and he, but even those he called dry enlightenment. And the thing about dry enlightenment is that uh, it becomes a memory. You ha- you take the drug, and then you remember it. But you're not necessarily any more kind. As a matter of fact, you might begin to say to your to your loved one, "Oh, I, it's silly that you're you're concerned about this. Just drop some acid." Yeah. But but she's concerned about this. This yes. is on her mind. Yes. Uh, she wants this book taken care of. She's concerned this book isn't being taken care of well. So uh, I'm less available to her because I have this. I think I've got this enlightenment experience, mm-hmm. and she should just get with it. Get with it. And but how? Oh, that's not kindness. That's not compassion. That's compassion. That's dry enlightenment. That's compassionless enlightenment. Who wants that? What's the value of that? So what you're talking about really, then, is it's the practice. It's going yes. back to the very yes. beginning of our conversation yes. Yes. when Suzuki yeah. Roshi yeah. said to, her, to yeah. you, yeah. Uh, Tim, yeah. uh, he, he advised yeah. you, he said, yeah. Tim, just sit. Yeah, that's right. You know, you were trying to yeah, make right. something more of right. it, and he said, no, yeah. just sit. That's right. That's exactly right. And we could say just sit, but we don't need to also deify just sitting. Uh, just spend time in quietness. Just spend time every day in quietness where you're not doing anything but just being. Uh, and whatever meditation path you're on, it's fine. It's fine. Uh, so that you can let go of all this stuff, even let go of the idea that you're going to have a special experience. You might not have a special experience. The special experience is just being here, just being here. Beautiful, beautiful. So um, is there anything else that you would like to add? The idea of beauty, beauty. being surrounded in beauty, oh, yes. I, 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 I it, it, being surrounded in beauty can be very, very meditative. And and uh, Zen Zen comes from uh, the 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 coming together of Taoism and Buddhism. Taoists were nature mystics. They believe that if you spend time by the water or spend time by a tree and and aren't busy trying to fix things, get your camp set up all the time, or but just with it, with it, that you can sink into this deep stillness. You can have just one Buddha statue or one flower in your room. If you really look at that flower or one leaf outside as we go outside and really are with that, being close to nature can really help us sink into this wonderful spaciousness that's always here at the center of everything. And it doesn't even know it's the center. and It's just what is. <laughs> Tim, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. I've been speaking with Tim Burkett. He's the author of the memoir, Nothing Holy About It, The Zen of Being, Just Who You Are. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, nothingholyaboutit.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. 
I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3558. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.